Hello, everyone, and welcome to the INSEAD Ideas in Motion podcast. I'm your host, Anjum Rangwala. Eleanor Warnock joins us on today's episode of Ideas in Motion. Eleanor started her career as a correspondent in the Wall Street Journal's Tokyo Bureau and was previously the communication manager at one of Europe's largest VC firms, Atomico. She is an 18J graduate from INSEAD. Hello, Eleanor. Welcome to the podcast. We're very excited to have you on. Hey, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So it would be great to kick off just to hear a little bit about your personal and professional background, what you were doing before INSEAD and where you're at now. Totally. So I'm, I think it's good always when you're talking to someone from INSEAD to preference where you're from originally, because sometimes, you know, with all of the places that everyone's worked and stuff like that, it's, it's, you kind of forget about where you're actually from originally. So I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland in the United States, went to university in the United States. Um, and then right after I graduated um, from university in the US, I moved to Japan um, and I went and worked first did a very short stint at Bloomberg in Tokyo and then worked for five years at the Tokyo Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. I covered markets, mostly fixed income, uh, central banking, macroeconomic policy, and then just anything else that might be thrown at me as a correspondent in Japan. So had to cover a baseball story once, had to cover about how Japanese people eat KFC for Christmas. Um, So it was really a interesting grab bag of stuff. Um, And it was a time when everyone thought that central bankers were like rock stars. So it was a great time to be covering monetary policy. Um, So yeah, I did that for five years and then really was thinking that I wanted to do a managerial role in the future. Um, And so I applied to a number of different MBA programs and left Japan to go um, do my MBA. Um, I chose INSEAD basically because I wanted to do a an MBA program that was outside of the U.S. It's always been my philosophy that as U.S. citizen, which is a real privilege that I have, um, you know, the U.S. will always be there for me. And so when I can get um, international experience, especially as I still don't have a family or anything that has to move with me, I like to choose the kind of international experience. So chose INSEAD, um, had an amazing time there, and then decided to stay in Europe after INSEAD. And I was hearing a lot about tech and entrepreneurship in Europe. This was back in 2018 because I'm an 18J and uh, started looking at positions at VC funds and started working post-INSEAD at Europe's largest independent VC, Atomico, which was started by Nicholas Sundström, one of the co-founders of Skype, and uh, was working on the operations team there, what Atomico calls the um, growth acceleration team. And we can talk a little bit about that later. Um, Did that for almost three years. It was an incredible experience, worked with 30 plus companies across that time. And then I was thinking that I would love to go back into journalism and looking at roles in that space. And this sifted role came up um, and it was really just the, the best combination of my MBA skills and my journalism experience and my knowledge about startups in VC. Um, so I'm not just a reporter at Sifted, I'm also feeding into the strategy of the business, helping mentor our younger reporters, 
thinking about hiring, thinking about how we're going to make money. Um, and it's been almost a year now, but it's been an incredible ride. So that's me. Wonderful. Your time in Japan sounds amazing. Uh, definitely one of the places uh, that I want to visit. And I know you were saying that you wanted to get a chance to go back there soon. So uh, hoping that happens happens very soon um, for you. Um, okay, great. I would love to hear a little bit. Yeah, fingers crossed. Exactly. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about what you're focused on uh, in your current role at Sifted now. Yeah, totally. So I joined Sifted about a year ago as the commissioning editor. So basically to work with all of the external people that write for Sifted, we have a pretty robust opinion piece section um, and we have things written by founders and operators in European tech. So I was hired to do that job, but of course in pure startup fashion, about a week before I started, my boss, um, Michael was like, oh, Eleanor, there's also these 10 other things that we want you to do. So can you please do those? So I ended up just, you know, generally editing things, doing a bit of reporting myself. Um, and then recently I was promoted to deputy editor. So I'm now leading the newsroom with a woman who is our editor, Amy Lewin, um, which means that we are a female-led newsroom, which is very, very rare in journalism. Very cool. And I definitely want to talk a little bit more about what you're covering um, at Sifted and generally the European uh, tech ecosystem. But before we do that, I want to actually go back and talk about what you were doing at Atomico. Um, so talking about non-investment roles, I think people are very familiar, obviously, when you look at a VC fund, you know, th they think of an investing role or, you know, working on that side. But, you know, there are a lot of non-investment roles in VC funds. And I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, what you were doing at Atomico in a non-investment role. Definitely. So first to talk a little bit about the non-investment role um, universe, just broadly, before I get into what my role was at Atomico. So I think we are seeing more and more VC firms add these non-investment roles. They can be called operational roles. That's kind of what they're known as in PE firms, or they can be called, you know, like at Atomical, we talked about growth acceleration roles. Um, and more VCs are adding this just because it is so competitive to get into the best deals nowadays. And VCs really want a way that they can differentiate themselves to founders. So say we're, we're more than just money. We actually have this entire suite of services that you can access if you're part of our portfolio. And in Europe, Atomico was one of the earliest VCs to have this kind of offering, simply because we were, Atomico was founded by Nicholas, who had the experience of founding Skype, and he really understood as a former founder and operator how important it was for founders at the earliest stages of their business to have advice and support on that, specifically from people who had been there and done that. So we had people from Spotify, people from Skype, people from Google, from Twitter, who had been there, who had helped scale companies from, you know, a couple hundred people to thousands of people, and who were really just there on call for our founders um, to help them with anything they might run across any problems they might run into in the day-to-day -day running of their business. So within that, I was communications manager. So I worked on a team of two to advise our portfolio about communications and marketing. Um, my role was a little bit unique in that we also worked on communications and marketing for Atomico, the firm itself. And then about 70% of our time was spent on uh, basically consulting for the portfolio. And every time we had a new portfolio company join the Atomico family, we would sit down with the founder or founders and 
kind of take stock, do an analysis of where they were in terms of communications and marketing, and then help them set up the groundwork for a successful comms and marketing function in their business. I should also mention that Atomico mostly invests at Series A. And most Series A companies, you know, they, they have a product, they have a little bit of traction. Maybe they're thinking about going to the next city or the next country, right? But a lot of times they haven't really thought about how they're going to tell the story of that great product that they have. Um, so it was a really exciting time to actually come in and, and sit down with the founders and help them. Mm-hmm. And you were at Atomico in this uh, role for three years, right? So can you kind of talk about some of the tangible impact you made um, on Atomico as a firm throughout your three years in this role? Totally. So when I explain to founders the value proposition of my role, um, I really talked about it in terms of audiences. So the audiences for an early stage startup would be invest potential future investors, right? It would be talent. It would be potential clients. And then it would be their industry. So how other startups or even bigger companies, established companies, saw them within the space they were operating in. And through my work with companies in communications and marketing, I really saw how we could drive impact across those those four audiences. I think that two of them are perhaps very notable to talk about because you can, you can actually really... Um, well, actually, no, three. Let's talk about three. Um, let's first you know, pick out talent, right? We had a company that was a AI-driven architecture platform, has since exited the company, but really, really interesting company. They were hiring from for some very, very specific roles. Um, you know, you had to know about urban planning, but you also had to know about AI. So really difficult talent to find. Um, and after working with them on their messaging and getting, you know, them some press coverage. Um, They had a huge spike in the number of applicants that they had for one of those jobs that they had a really hard time filling. So you could see immediately the impact there. Um, For clients as well, after working with one of um, a great company that we worked with called Infarm, which is a vertical farming company out of Berlin, um, you know, helped them with messaging, getting some like media coverage, slots at conferences, all that stuff, you know, big Um, spike in inbound for them, for potential customers. And then finally, one that I think is really overlooked, but also um, super important, is future investors. So a lot um, more and more frequently now, investors are being called on to help their companies and support them in finding the next uh, capital that's going to come in, right? And when investors look at a potential target company, a lot of times FOMO plays a huge role or perception that that, that startup is winning in the space, right? And so helping companies set up a narrative, getting eyeballs on them, you know, being visible in specific places really helped uh, when investors, future investors looked at that company and were like, okay, this is the company that we want to bet on in the space. So I think a lot of times Startups can be super focused on, okay, we just need people to build. So we need talent and we need customers, right? We need money. Um, and they forget that next step, which is bringing in the next stage of capital. And communications and marketing can be really, really key in providing value there as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the role is really filling a lot of you know gaps that VC firms may have had before they kind of built out these types of non-investment roles um, in the firms. And and obviously, you mentioned at the beginning that um, Atomico was one of the first right to to have these non-investment roles. But I, I know that in the U.S. Um, they were becoming quite popular in VC funds. And obviously now um, in, in Europe, I, I definitely see the, these non-investment roles in, in a lot of big, bigger VC firms and even smaller ones as well. But how has the focus on these types of roles shifted in the last few years? Obviously, VCs are using these roles to kind of differentiate themselves, um, you know, for um, startups that they could potentially fund or, you know, using them to uh, to their advantage to kind of potentially get into a deal early. But I'm curious on while you were there at Atomico, kind of how the landscape of non-investment roles shifted. Yeah, so there was one specific shift that I saw while I was at Atomico, which was the rise of the platform role. Some people call it a community role. A lot of times it's called platform role. Um, I saw a lot of those being hired across European VCs. And that is a role that means many, many different things at different funds. Um, It can mean kind of connecting the dots between portfolio companies. I think, you know, a lot of times... VCs can bring a lot of value to their portfolio companies, for example, by connecting them to an LP. Like say you have a big corporate LP, you've invested in a very cool HR tech platform. Why shouldn't you and like introduce that corporate to that HR tech? It could be really beneficial to their business, right? So having someone in-house that really connects those dots is something that I'm seeing more and more VCs doing. And then that can also go for connecting the dots within the portfolio. So can you connect your you know, CXOs? Can you make a community for your CTOs? Can you make a community where uh, COOs who are further along their journey can give information and insight to COOs that are earlier in their journey? And so we're seeing a lot more people that are placed kind of in the center of the portfolio um, to try and connect those dots. And that is a very interesting, um, yeah, a very interesting development, I would say, in these non-investment roles. Yeah, it's very interesting to see kind of how it's played out over the last few years. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more focus on it as well um, as we as we move forward. Now I want to actually shift to you know what you're currently doing at at Sifted. So you're covering uh, European tech, and you know if you look at Europe, it's really like the startup pipeline is really kind of getting to be on par with the U.S. in the sense that in 2021 there was 100 billion of capital invested, 98 unicorns out of Europe. So there's really been a big big growth um, that we've seen coming out of Europe in the startup space. Um, so I'm curious from your from your perspective, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the European tech tech ecosystem in the last few years? Yeah, so one is definitely companies staying private for longer. Companies in Europe now have access to a lot more capital at the later stages, so they can really afford to stay private for longer. They don't have to be looking for an exit super quickly, um, and they can focus really on building the business and scaling globally before they actually have to think, oh, like, do we want to be acquired? Do we want to do an IPO, et cetera, et cetera? Um, great example of that would be something like Klarna. Klarna is, I'm pretty sure at this point, Europe's most valuable private company, right? And it is far more valuable than many companies on stock exchanges around the world. But um, Sebastian, Klarna's founder, has 
decided that he wants to keep the company private for a little bit longer. Um, there have been, you know, rumors and chatter about when they will do an IPO. Um, and it could not be, it could be not very far off. Um, but it's interesting that he's been able to raise so much money and just really focus on, on scaling the company, especially as he like goes in and tries to win over the US, right? I think another thing that's um, adjacent to that, right, is the entry of more US investors in a very aggressive way into Europe. Obviously, US investors are uh, big suppliers of capital to later stage European tech companies. So part of the background to European tech companies being able to raise more money is more US money coming into Europe. And that has really just been a function of uh, US investors, super sophisticated world-class investors looking at Europe and being like, okay, Europe can create companies like Adyen. It can create companies like Spotify. These you know, categ- global category winning companies that are on par with any company that's ever come out of the US or China, right? Um, and so it's really been interesting to see competition heat up between those US investors and European investors. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see the European tech ecosystem kind of, you know, mirroring, you know, the growth that was in the US and kind of, you know, keeping up with it in some ways. So I'm, I'm curious also your thoughts on if you look at, you know, less developed, but also very fast growing regions, you know, like LATAM, uh, Southeast Asia, Africa, do you think that eventually it'll be the same kinds of trends there? Or how do you see the European tech ecosystem differing from from these types of regions? Yeah, so I think that the European tech ecosystem in parts and some countries like core countries like the UK, like Paris, like France, like Germany is still much more mature than some of the other ecosystems, like up and coming ecosystems. Um, but I think what we've seen happen in Europe. So U- Europe and European tech has basically, you know, done what the US did in a much shorter time frame, right? It's, ca- it's starting to catch up with the United States, but that time frame is being compressed. And so I think right. when other emerging ecosystems start to go through that maturation um, and the flywheel of you know great talent, great companies getting recycled back into the ecosystem starts really spinning, we'll see that process done, but even faster. So, you know, I have actually a couple of friends from INSEAD that are now investing in Africa or they are working at African tech startups. And I just see that process happening so, so fast. Um, And so I think it's also because you'll have talent, people that have done it again, right? They've scaled Uh these huge companies in other regions going into more emerging ecosystems and helping people out, right? So I think we'll just see the same, a very similar process happen um, in other places in the world. But just at, like you said, at a more accelerated pace, kind of, uh, as we saw in Europe. Exactly. Very cool. And and now, you know, with the current environment, you know, given geopolitical inflation concerns, do you have any ideas on how the rest of the year might play out when it comes to capital deployment in Europe? So I've been talking to investors a lot about this recently. This is like when I have calls with VCs, this is like the first question I ask them. I'm like, have you seen any change in deal terms, right? Have you seen any change in the speed of transactions taking place or um, investors' willingness to deploy capital? And until now, um, honestly, 
people say that they haven't really seen much of a slowdown at all um, in European tech. Um, obviously, if there were to be an impact, the really, really competitive deals, I don't think would be affected really much, very much, right? You know, like if Klarna were going to raise more money, they would have no problem raising more money, right? These right. European unicorns that we talked about before, you know, they're pretty de-risked as a business and they're, it's going to be still super competitive to get into those deals. It's going to be the companies that aren't actually performing as well that might have found it easier to raise capital, you know, a year ago. Um, that might struggle should things slow down. But the other interesting factor in this, um, in the macroecon environment, when you think about what capital deployment is going to look like in Europe this year, is the fact that VCs in Europe are sitting on historic piles of capital, right? And so there's a pretty good buffer for even if there is a little bit of a slowdown, VCs still have a lot of capital to deploy, right? And so there's also an argument and a case to be made that even if there was a slowdown or a softening, there would be a little bit of a buffer for a while before things really got got bad or it became harder for some companies to raise. Right. It's it's actually pretty cool. Um, just just thinking about your role right now, it's sifted how um, in some ways you've kind of been able to connect the dots, right? Like thinking about the macroeconomic environment now, it kind of connects back to your role at uh, Wall Street Journal. I was just thinking that it's uh, pretty oh pretty gosh. cool. Almost comes full, full circle. Totally, totally. And I like love geeking out on things like I don't know. I feel like a lot of times people don't really, people who are in the startup ecosystem don't really think about that interesting membrane between companies going onto the public markets and being private. And that area is just really, really fascinating to me and does seem less scary having a background in that. Definitely. And to wrap it up, I would really like to bring the focus back to INSEAD. Obviously, you, you're an INSEAD graduate, so I'd love to hear about uh, some advice that you would give yourself if you were if you were just starting your year at INSEAD. If I were just starting my year at INSEAD, I would give myself some advice that I think I followed the first time, but I would also definitely want this advice to kind of, I would want other people at INSEAD to hear this advice, which is, please don't get sucked up in the consulting hype. There are so many fascinating roles out there that aren't in consulting and you should be creative in your job hunt and think about what, what is there out there that can be, you can do that's really, really cool. Um, I think that when I was at INSEAD, there wasn't a lot of support for finding tech roles, especially at startups, um, but those roles existed, right? And so my kind of advice for myself, which I think I followed, is like, go look for those interesting and cool roles. They are there. It just takes a bit more searching. Definitely. And I mean, I think that's really also one of the reasons if I think about this podcast of, you know, my my motivation to start it is I also wanted to, um, you know, kind of. Um, for current students and pr- prospective students, you know, show them that there's a world out there of uh, NCI graduates who have started their own companies, who are working, um, you know, in startups, who are in that ecosystem, who are, you know, doing early stage investing. Um, so cu- to kind of shine a little bit of a light on that. Um, but I'm also curious what you think that, uh, you know, INSEAD can do to get students, you know, more excited about entrepreneurship options or, you know, working at startups or working in BC. 
Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. So I think that INSEAD did a pretty good job with some of the um, field trips. I don't know, study trips, whatever they were called. I helped organize one to New York. That was a tech one. Those were really, really great when you actually got to go meet companies, right? Um, I think, you know, supporting people in finding internships in tech, um, you know, we're INSEAD is really, really close to Paris from the Fontainebleau campus. And there's great stuff going on in Paris. And similarly in Singapore, there's really interesting companies and a big alumni base that's involved in those companies. So I think just encouraging people to connect to those communities more is big. But I also think, and this is why I think this podcast that you're doing is so cool, I think that the alumni have a lot to do. Um, speaking about, you know, I talked at the beginning of this podcast about how I was brought in to work on opinion pieces, right? I worked on this super interesting opinion piece um, that I don't know if it's going to, I guess it'll be out by the time this podcast is out, but we'll say that is out on Sifted um, by a guy that works, that studies at Oxford and he's a founder, he's an undergraduate founder. So in a little bit different stage of his career than many people at INSEAD. And his argument is basically, well, you know, we all know about these alumni founder networks that came out of Stanford, that came out of Harvard in the United States, but why can't anyone in Europe name an alumni founder that's come from INSEAD, that's come from Oxford, right? That's come from Ashesse. Mm -hmm. And so his argument is that both the schools and the alumni need to spend so much more time on this kind of alumni founder myth building, you know, raising mm -hmm. awareness yeah. about the founders that are out there and their connection to that school, right? And so right. I think that um, that actually, interestingly enough, ties in with what Sifted's trying to do, right? It's like, we want to highlight interesting founders in the ecosystem. And a lot of times those founders will be from these incredible schools across Europe. Um, and so that helps kind of create that founder myth and inspire the next generation of founders and operators. So I think that there's also stuff to be done um, by alumni, like go out there and talk about your experience in forums that other INSEAD students, potential students, other alumni are going to be accessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, I, I am seeing a lot of that. We have some of the, you mentioned those field trips, but we have a few of those treks planned and I know that mm. students are really excited about that. Um, but yeah, very excited to see uh, in the future uh, some INSEAD founders uh, featured on Sifted. Yes, hopefully. Yes, we did. We did. One of our like most read stories last year was about unicorn universities in Europe. Um, INSEAD was number two on that list. So just saying. Ah, very cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, great. Well, just to wrap things up on a fun note, I'd love to hear about your favorite INSEAD memory. So my favorite INSEAD memory is definitely, it's it's not like one moment, but it has to be living in Club 16. Um, if <laughs> anyone was on the Fontainebleau campus, I'm sure you're familiar with Club 16. Um, when I lived there, well, there are 16 rooms, but when I lived there, there were actually 17 people living there because there was a couple living in one of the rooms. And it was just so wild all the time. And it was <laughs> incredibly fun to live with 17 or 16 other amazing people made some really great friends there and now I live by myself and I'm really enjoying living by myself but club says club 16 was so much fun <laughs> yeah not very very uh very classic NCAD for sure totally um 
Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor, for being a guest on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking to you about uh, both your time at Atomico and Sifted um, and look forward to reading what you publish next. Thank you so much. Friends, thank you for listening to the Ideas in Motion podcast. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. And if you liked this one, please share it. Signing off, I'm your host, Anja Mrangwala.